Hey friends, it's Eric here. Thanks for listening to the Building Us podcast. Hey, I want to invite you to follow me on my new show, Stuff About Money They Didn't Teach You in School, where I take a deeper dive into money and financial topics. You can find it wherever you listen to your podcast, Stuff About Money They Didn't Teach You in School. I hope to see you there. suspect your child has apraxia of speech or recently went through a diagnosis, it had a lot of education on there for me, as well as um, some support groups on social media that I was able to join and hear other people's stories and kind of just see that you're not alone because this diagnosis especially is only 1%. And so that was good for us, uh, for me to see. But I think more than anything, it's just a strong support system. This is the Building Us Podcast. I am Eric Garcia, Certified Financial Planner and Financial Advisor, along with my co-host, Dr. Matt Morris, Couples Counselor, Family Therapist. What's up, Matt? Hey, man. Well, good evening. It's a a challenging recording session so far, just to put that out there. We just started. Challenging already, and we just started. (laughs) So we just got through with our simple series. We hope that y'all enjoyed it. Matt, I'm curious, what is your, of the of the six simple practical and tactical things, recommendations that we gave people that they could do to make a deposit in their emotional bank account? What's your favorite? What was your favorite? Hmm. 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 You know, I was a big fan of the kissing one, but then I got Mm-hmm. Some sort of strep throat right after that, and you were you were kind of making fun of me about that. You did. You got strep but, throat the day that it <laughs> dropped that episode, or the weekend after it dropped. So that wasn't a good idea. Don't big kiss fan, people. Big fan of the kissing one, and and one one day my mom sent me a text that had a bunch of little kiss emojis, and it said, "I'm investing in my relationship." Did she really? And I thought that's so nice. My mom, yeah. So your mom so listens nice. to our podcast. I, I guess she listens to some. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I like you know. I like to reach Kiss out to me. others, and your your mom reached out to you with kiss emojis. That's that's like two two things in one. That's pretty cool. I like that. Well, yeah, and I think she was kissing somebody, just letting me know that she was doing that. Well, she can't get strep through the phone. That's a good. That's a good thing. So, well, we hope y'all enjoy the series. We're going to be following that year. up soon. Maybe next. Oh, maybe. Yeah. Well, we'll be following that up soon with a simple one on money, simple, practical, tactical things you can do with your money. So be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast listening app, wherever you listen to your podcast, you can find the Building Us podcast. And if you have a question for us, send us a um, send us an email. You can find us at building-us.com. We'd love to hear from you. Today, we have some special guests, Matt, friend of, friends of ours, Erica and Austin Edenfield. And we are talking about a topic that um, it's, it's, a, it's an important topic. It's something that's obviously very important to them. We're going to talk about what it's like being the parents of a special needs child. Austin, Erica, how are you? Doing good. Doing great. Thanks for having us, guys. So tell us a little bit, um, tell us a little bit about yourselves. Erica, you go first. Um, my name is Erica, and I am wife to Austin and mom of two beautiful girls, Madeline, age six, and Clara is three. They're beautiful. I'll agree with that. They're much more beautiful than Austin. 
Uh, I agree. Uh, speaking of which, you know, if they're so beautiful, you could get our last name right, Edenfield. Edin. Gosh. No, but thanks for having us. I'm Austin. Uh, I'm an ATP SMS. That means I'm an assistive technology professional and a seating and mobility specialist. Uh, I work for a very large um, power wheelchair company, and I lead their technical and product education. So you you make wait, technology. Wait, wait. Say, say, say some of the letters again. ATP. So assisted. ATP SMS. I'm an ATP Smith. ATP is assistive technology professional. SMS is a uh, seating and mobility specialist. And so like practically what, what kind of technology would you work on that I would be aware of that I might know of? Uh, well, ATP is more of a generalist certification. It's primarily used in the fields of like um, seating and mobility for, uh, you know, working with people's posture so that they can be functional when they're, um, no longer able to like self ambulate and they need a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. uh, so really power wheelchairs, wheelchairs, communication devices, um, assistive technology professionals also just kind of utilize some of that consumer technology stuff to work with clients sometimes. So definitely you'd be familiar with like Alexa or with some of the accessible features like um, assistive touch on Apple products, for example. And you, you, we, we, we knew you all because we all live in New Orleans. And when you were in, in New Orleans, you worked for a pretty famous New Orleanian, I think, in helping, in helping he and his family with assisted technology. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I, I worked for him, but I mainly worked for his nonprofit. Um, he would just call me when, you know, stuff hit the fan, <laughs> generally. But, yeah, I, I uh So we're talking about Steve, and, Steve Gleason. Yes, Steve Gleason. Uh, former former the, saint. Yeah player responsible for what we know in new Orleans as the rebirth play. Yeah. So that was a cool experience. Yeah. Uh, I, I was, uh, picked by him and a gentleman named Blair to help lead their technology operation. So supplying things, um, like, uh, augmentative communication devices for people who were living with Lou Gehrig's disease so they could continue to independently communicate, mm. um, home automation, environmental control stuff, uh, also, uh, power mobility related stuff or bathing equipment, home remodels, things of that nature. We really kind of had a, or not had, that organization does have a broad spectrum of stuff they do for people with Lou Gehrig's disease. And, the, and your first foray into this world was, was not through Steve Gleason's uh, nonprofit, but I think it was through like working with Apple. Is that right? Apple and Microsoft? Yeah, so uh, that's how Erica and I met, was working at Apple, actually. Um, mm. I worked in the Apple retail stores, a couple different ones, and worked my way up through the different kinds of technicians they had there. And then I ended up working for Microsoft. Um, some of the guys at the Apple store, the management team left. Microsoft was like, hey, Apple's doing these retail stores. They're really successful. We want to do them, too. And so they opened like their first one um, outside of Tennessee. That was like their first brick and mortar one for like that area of the South. So I jumped over and I was worked as a technician there and I did a lot of their like business setups type things. Uh, and that's actually how I got hooked up with Steve Gleason, which is kind of a crazy story in and of itself. But, but yeah, that 
Apple, then Microsoft, then Team Gleason, and now Quantum Rehab. Wow. Oh, it's really uh, interesting. I don't know that I've sat in and he heard your professional story in that way. And even now, I think I can see you on video, our listeners can't, but even now you're sitting in a power wheelchair. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, this is the, this is so like, I don't want to do product placement, but of course I'm, I'm in a wheelchair that my company makes uh, because, <laughs> you know, but this is our edge three model. And this one here I've got has all the bells and whistles. It's got the backup camera and everything on it. And um, I got it a little bit posteriorly tilted right now to um, help me be more comfortable, relieve some pressure off of my buttocks. Is that your office uh, chair? Is that, is that how you work? And holds your daughters? No, the, Erica's in my office chair. This is just a chair I, I work on or I use for presentations sometimes. Sometimes like um, I might go out in the field with one of our reps or something and bring it along when we're working with therapists to like in-service them on it and things. Uh, we did have one. We had one in the house for a while. The pediatric wheelchair? We, had, we came out with this wheelchair called the Stretto, and it's the uh, narrowest. Um, it's 20.47 inches wide, but it's a full power wheelchair. Yeah. And it's, as of right now, I think it's the narrowest power wheelchair you can get in North America. And so we have a little pediatric seat we just launched that goes all the way down to like 10 wide by 10 deep on the seat. And so that was cool. We got that and I got to present on it and I had to take some video and put the kids in it and let them ride around in it and teach Clara how to drive a wheelchair safely. I saw that video. <laughs> some wheelchair skills. I saw that video. Yeah. She, she was bossing it. A little three-year-old yeah, bossing the wheelchair. Yeah, it's a fun video seeing a three-year-old being able to learn how to drive a chair and know how to make it spin circles and follow different directions to follow dad around it was pretty neat to see her <laughs> get around that way. So now, all of your children are, are fully ambulatory, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Your, your family's ambulatory. And so that that's not the disability that we're talking about today. We're talking about something different, which is, uh, I think known as childhood apraxia disorder. Is that right? Yes, it's correct. Uh, childhood apraxia of speech is the diagnosis that my oldest Madeline has. Mm. Can you yeah, tell us a little bit about now? that, Erica, and kind of what, what, what that means and some of the symptoms? Sure. Um, she is six years old and childhood apraxia of speech is a motor planning disorder. Um, it is neurological and it's lifelong. So the, she hears everything that you're saying and she knows what she wants to communicate back. But for some reasons unknown, the signal gets lost going from the brain to her mouth in order to complete those sequences that she needs in order to communicate properly. So like, I know, I know her. So if I ask her a question like, Hey, what is that on your dress? She, she knows what I've asked. She knows what exactly what she wants to answer. And she's very um, precocious and cheerful and upbeat anyway. So she wants to answer it in a, in this, in this sweet little voice. Uh, but what, what comes out of her mouth may not be understandable to me. Is that right? She knows Correct. what she's saying, but how I hear it, it's hard for me to ne necessarily know what she's saying. 
Exactly. And it might help because in that situation, you have context, you see what's on her shirt. Mm -hmm. And so you hear what she's saying. And so you're able to kind of substitute and fill in the blanks and get a reference point. mm -hmm. So it's easier to understand when you have that context. And I can myself probably understand close to 70%, I would say when it's Mm -hmm. in context. Um, Outside of context, I struggle myself and probably understand about 50%. But she's very intelligent and she's creative. So she can usually find other ways to tell me something. She knows um, she's okay with me asking her to repeat. And I can ask her to try to explain it to me another way. And so she is very good at finding other words that she can say or describing something or even going to get an example in order to communicate with me. Mm. I think you said this is lifelong. So it's something that as she was speaking from a very early age, y'all were starting to notice. It's not, it's not an all at once thing, but it's something that you were picking up on pretty early on. We picked up on it pretty early that something was going on. Um, but we had never heard of this before. And, um, were quite shocked. We didn't get a diagnosis until four and a half. And we were very confused at that time that we had spent two and a half years in therapy without really understanding what this was. And there were other signs too, because childhood apraxia of speech isn't her only diagnosis. It's affecting her globally. And so the first signs of her needing help was her even as an infant struggling to eat um, struggling to nurse or take a bottle or a sippy cup, eating food, um, even gross motor things like rolling over, crawling, walking, all of those things came a little bit later than what they should have, where we were watching and waiting and trying to figure out what does she need, what kind of help does she need, but not quite understanding how to provide her that help. And the, you know, you go to your doctors and your pediatricians and they say, just wait it out. It'll correct itself. Just wait it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We had a lot of wait and see approaches taken. Um, so I appreciate the doctors that we got to that eventually were supportive of being proactive rather than reactive. And that's when we really started noting, noticing the difference. And we started getting her in therapies and we've really seen just small victories. Yeah, you were you so you said you were in therapy two and a half years before you even got the diagnosis of of apraxia. Yes. And you were talking about that the apraxia, it's called apraxia of speech, but that it really was showing up in lots of ways for her. And just Mm -hmm. to be a little bit more transparent, I have some context with this because I knew her pretty early on. And my wife is a speech therapist. And so I've I've heard about apraxia and heard about uh, what that might look like. And, um, probably even heard my wife talk about Madeline as possibly having some apraxia or being apraxic mm-hmm. or something like that. I, I probably heard that conversation. A she while was the ago. first one to mention, um, that to me. I didn't understand what she was saying at the time, but that's the first time I ever heard the word apraxia was from your wife. Mm. Um, but shortly after that time is we had moved and, we just did, you don't know what until yeah. you know you don't know what you don't know until yeah. you until you know yeah and that's um, that's crazy to think about because my my really my biggest regret in all of this is um 
you know, just, just being trans, being vulnerable with y'all here, being real. I, um, I regret placing more trust in the doctors than in my wife at some points in this journey. Like Erica kept saying, I know something's up. I know something's up. And I would say, well, the doctor said that, you know, this doctor's seen thousands of kids. He says, it's nothing to worry about. He says, just, it'll work out. And going back, you know, I, I when you look at it in hindsight, you do realize like, wow, okay. Like they were just kind of writing us off. You know, they probably think, Oh, you know, who knows what they think, but definitely we were being written off. And, um, I think if we would have advocated earlier than we did, even just by like six months, you know, that's one of the things that I beat myself up on sometimes is, but uh, maybe we would have gotten that diagnosis a tiny bit sooner had, had I listened to Erica more instead of listened to the doctors and just assumed that they were automatically correct because of the credentials after their name, you know? Yeah. 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 I, I hear you. And I think probably every parent that has, um, uh, their kid goes through something or their kid has a special need. I, I, most of those parents regret not advocating more and loudly and more strongly for their, for their kid. And yeah, I, I hear that from parents a lot. I think we've lost Eric. We lost Eric, I think. <laughs> um, okay. Well, I think we'll just keep moving on if that's okay. And yeah, I'm okay with that. Okay. Um, I, I could talk about this for a long time, but I, I think we said we'll I just talk feel about bad because I know he had some questions about. I can still talk about uh -huh. advocating and finances and stuff and we can insert his questions. We can pretend he was here. Yeah. I, well, he, I know he wanted to ask about like the emotional tolls of working with people with ALS that are constantly dying around you and then going home and having, I don't know. Oh, he didn't tell me that part. He, um, he and I share a document of questions that we're, we were even just kind of trying to chat on while we, while we were talking a minute ago. But, um, but, uh, he said he couldn't, like he was typing and it was like one letter at a time. <laughs> this is, it feels a little bit like we're having some kind of disabilities ourselves tonight with this technology and it's not working. So, um, you were talking about your daughter, um, revealing that she was having some challenges with speech early on and you guys were trying to figure that out. Um, I just want to zoom back out Austin to your career for a minute. How does your career of helping people express themselves begin to intersect with your daughter's life? How did, how did those two things come together? Cause I don't think, uh, and, and to, uh, up until some point in this story, those two things are disconnected, right? Yeah, they were, you know, uh, it's a little bit painful looking back, but, you know, I, I was, one of the things I, I did at Team Gleason was work uh, with uh, speech and language pathologists to help uh, deliver what we call AAC, Augmentative Alternative Communication Devices, mm -hmm. to people with ALS, uh, you know, uh, that we're dealing with dysarthria, which is that neurological condition that affects the uh, speech intelligibility. And so, but adults, we, these are adults, right? They're not children. Uh, people with ALS are generally adults. Yeah. yeah. But um, there was a couple we were, you know, I worked with an eight year old as well as um, mm. 
one 14 year old that passed away when she turned 17. So it, it is rare juvenile ALS, but it's, it's still there, but it's pretty rare. Um, so we, we knew that we knew that Madeline was going through something. We didn't know what, and I guess I just kind of rolled back a little bit. I said, okay, the doctors are saying there's, there's, you know, just wait and see, wait and see. I think she has something going on. Erica thinks she has something going on, but she was so young then. She was two, two and a half, um, that we were taking her to speech pathologists and they were just like, oh, it's just a basic phonological, you know, thing. And they had diagnosed severe phonological disorder is, um, was what her original diagnosis was. And that, that's different than apraxia, I guess. Yes. I don't, yeah. Yeah. A phonological disorder is going to be very different than a motor planning disorder. Okay. Um, because the motor planning involves the brain and creating that repetitive sequencing to train it how to communicate with the mouth to make those movements. That's going mm-hmm. to be different than something that's a speech issue. More like one could be more like an articulation issue, maybe a muscle thing right. with the mouth where the mouth isn't moving correctly. Very mm-hmm. different than motor planning, which is neurological. There's something not yes. not happening with what the brain is thinking to the mouth. There's something's right. And to give you an there. example, because hers is global, um, riding a bike. Think of all the different things and moving parts that yeah. goes where you have to balance on a bike, but then also you have to move your feet in that constant motion. And yeah. Madeline struggles with that multitasking of doing both the balance and moving the feet. And the brakes being the uh-huh. reverse. Yeah. And she has to really tell herself, okay, this right foot's going up, the left foot's going down. It's, it's not a natural occurrence for her in yeah. her feet. And it's the same for her mouth. It's affecting multiple parts of her body. But if that makes it make more sense by talking about something outside of speech, mm-hmm. there's a way that your body isn't quite responding to the signal properly whenever it's sure. a, that motion. Sure. Yeah. Well, that man, that, so, so yeah, like rolling over all of those like early gl- gross motor movement skills she was, mm-hmm. she was struggling with. So Austin, d- d- uh, take us back into the story of how your work started connecting to this. Um, so through my job, I've, I got mentored by a lot of great people. Um, I didn't really know much going into the job and, um, I was able to identify some people, you know, just by doing Google searches or reading journals of who was kind of at the top of the field. And I went to some of these people and I just said, Hey, like, can you teach me? Can you mentor me? And so I ended up, um, getting some pretty solid relationships in place with people that knew a lot that had been doing speech pathology for a long time that had been doing occupational therapy for a long time. And I remember, um, in Pennsylvania, the moment when it kind of clicked for me was I was talking with uh, one of my really, really good friends and mentors from, and I was telling her about everything that's going on with Madeline and she's a speech therapist. And she said, it sounds like it could be a praxis of speech. And she's like, you should maybe look at getting her a communication device and getting that set up. Um, and she's also the one that said also get you know, genetic testing done to see if there's anything revealed there. So that's kind of where it all started intersecting. And so the difference between, I guess, some of that is, um, 
I had a lot of connections that I called and I set up calls with people and I, you know, hey, we're having trouble with this IEP to get my daughter services. How do we do that? And that's more so how it intersected. Um, mm-hmm. We did get her an iPad and get an app on there and set that up. But most of the intersection from my job was through the relationships that I built, that I kind of had some connections that I knew who to call right away. And when we got her iPad, she got her iPad. I think, was she four and a half or was she five? I think she was, she was five. She was five. We wish we had gotten it sooner, but once we got it, Austin was able to set it up for her um, with some vocabulary on it that she uses it frequently with, um, or vocabulary that she uses frequently that is misunderstand often. So mm-hmm. she had that accessible to her on the iPad. Yeah. What, what's an example? What could What's something she could say? Once she got the iPad, she was thrilled. She was like, yeah, stay in the Oh, yeah. Um, ice cream. Ice cream is such a hard word to say, and you mm-hmm. don't think about it, but it has some harder, harder. Uh, the R for sure. And she <laughs> yeah. just wanted some, she just wanted ice cream pretty frequently. Yeah. Well, she named her baby doll that she's had since one. Her name is Ice Cream. Yeah. And so it's special to her. And I she's was. She's sleeping with it right now. <laughs> um, I was thankful. We. We found the, um, once we received diagnosis, she was four and a half, and we found amazing online support um, through the Apraxia Kids Organization, and through there we found a therapist. Um, There was no therapist in the town we were living in, and so we had to drive an hour to get a diagnosis, and we drove an hour, uh, hour and a half um, to speech sessions on weekends every month, uh, sometimes twice a month. And that therapist, you could just tell a difference in how she did therapy. Like she knew her stuff and she was able to produce more out of Madeline in a 30 minute session than other therapists could produce in probably an hour and a half week's time. Um, But she knew how valuable it was for Madeline to be able to communicate about things that were important to her. And so she didn't care that ice cream is not something you would teach a four and five year old to say. She put it as a goal for her because she knew it was something for us to strive towards because it's a word that she used frequently. And so I really appreciated that therapist approach to not just do what they're capable of, but also what like really meaningful. It's very meaningful. Yes. (laughs) The the one thing I want to jump in there too, is with this therapist she's mentioning. um, So here's another way they intersected Matt. Sometimes when, when a, you know, able-bodied individuals are interacting with someone, even an adult with a neurological condition, they tend to kind of talk like a baby to them or use different vocabulary or really try to be simplistic in their way of talking. I noticed that with the speech pathologist we were going to in New Orleans and and, um, the, the, the kind of local ones that we tried were really not pushing her. And I get it's a kid, you know, they're not going to have her say, you know, apply the empirical quadrilateral formula of Wesley's theological, you know, they're not going to say that, but um, it was almost like they weren't pushing her because they, they, it it felt emphasis on the word feel. I'm not saying this is how it was, but how we perceived it was that they weren't pushing her and they just kind of thought that like, maybe she wasn't as intelligent to be able to do it. So With this speech therapist that we started driving to see, she really pushed Madeline and she's like, no, no, no. I know Madeline's intelligence is off the scales. She can do this. And here's the diagnosis. All we have to do is change how we do therapy. Yeah. Yeah. So stop, stop infantilizing the kid and start treating the 
the kid uh, more from their their possibility what what she what she is what she can be mm-hmm. mm. and giving us another way to communicate her mm. having an iPad to communicate now that success isn't always measured by what she can voice but people can communicate through technology now yeah oh, that's fascinating and yeah that yeah that it was just so cool so when we would we would be at her her house doing these sessions with her and we would be on the couch and we never really were in the room with Madeline's sessions in New Orleans but one once or twice Erica and I did go back there and they would look at Erica and they would say what do you want to do for her? What is she trying to say? Whereas this speech therapist, when we were at her house in the room, she wouldn't look at us. She would look at Madeline and say, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And again, you see that with all sorts of disabilities. I would go out to eat with my friends who had ALS and the waiter might look at me or look at that person's spouse and say, what does he want? And the spouse would say, I don't know. Why don't you ask him? Mm -hmm. Yeah. A different way of interacting with people who are, who have disabilities uh, interacting with them directly as people and not around them by proxy through, through a friend or family member. Um, how has having a, a child with apraxia affected some other parts of your life? How has it, you know, I'm a couples therapist. So I always ask about the relationship. How's, how has, ha- how has this affected just your marriage? Maybe it's not directly, maybe it's some somehow more indirectly, but thoughts there. I know I'm pretty consumed by it. I do a lot of therapy and spend a lot of time in the car taking her to appointments and researching therapists I need to take her to, um, different um, grants that I've done. I know I probably spend more time now focusing on her and how to help her versus time that could be spent on my marriage. Just a lot of time emotional energy, time, mm-hmm. um, thought, just a lot, spending a lot of time thinking about this ties up some of your own kind of resources that maybe you could offer the relationship. If, but, th- but that's what you do as a mom. You sp- spend those moments and calories and energy and time yeah. taking care of, uh, of your daughter. And it's just the way our roles work out too. I mean, Austin supports me doing all that. Um, he's working full time and he's in school full time. So I know that um, this is something I just take the lead on. <laughs> she does take the lead on it. Um, I think it's, it's helped our marriage and there, there sometimes it does kind of hurt, hurt our marriage in a different way, mainly just because of, uh, I don't really know the healthiest way to talk about finances. Uh, and obviously there is a financial cost to going to five therapy sessions a week. And, yeah. and so we've, we've had some tension there, just like um, things of that nature where, where I freak out a lot quicker than she does. And I say, Oh, this, this, and this, and what, you know, but on the plus side of that, it has, helped us communicate better. I feel like, because like Erica's created some spreadsheets and some tools and we um, sit down and we talk about it together or, Oh, she's got one less session this week, or she's got one more session this week to make up. And we go through that together. So it's kind of helped us communicate better. Initially it was really rough uh, with the financial aspect and communicating around that. But 
Yeah. Now I would almost say it's kind of helped our marriage now that we've navigated through and know how to talk about that stuff now. It, it, well, and it's so interesting that our finance guy is uh, not able to communicate with us today. His the internet is struggling today. It seems in New Orleans, and and Eric is a uh, as it's only with us in in moments. It, it appears so he can't really advise you on this. But I mean, you're all. It's almost like you're saying the hard times have been helpful for us. They've they forced us to talk to communicate even better together. And, and in some way that uh, this communication issue has improved our communication. Sure. It, it has, and it's been responsible for a lot of our positive life changes through Madeline's disability. So much, so many like amazing positive things that have come out of it yeah. um, that we can look back on now. So one of the things I think that, I don't know how deep we want to get, but um, when at my at my previous job, I was putting in just a, a pretty. I mean, I'm, I'm gonna be. It was a pretty high amount of hours every week. It was definitely well above forty, and um, yeah. obviously, it it was a nonprofit organization. And New Orleans is a very expensive city, so through that process of taking Madeline to a lot of those appointments. Um, trying to figure out what was going on, we we ended up incurring some debt, uh, and that that's not like the sole reason, but through a myriad of other reasons, it some doors ended up um, being open to where, you know, we were able to now move to where we are today, where we're able to, I'm able to work less, um, mm -hmm. make a little bit more than I was and have better health insurance now, which also helps out with the finances than I did. And now our, our daughter is around the best kind of, you know, communication intervention, the best kind of team that she could be around. We're around some of the best of the best here in the Nashville area. So a lot of positives have come out of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I know, I think from conversations that we've had offline that you've had to make some moves. Uh, you've had to move the family in part to get Madeline the care that she needs and that the moves have been good for, for you all as a, as a couple and as a family, you enjoy where you're at now and work yeah. is, work is more balanced. Yeah, it has been. So, um, we've moved once since her diagnosis. Um, and a lot of that was because we needed to find her medical care that yeah. wasn't an hour and a half away. Yeah. that she could see on a weekly basis. Um, we needed better school systems, which we didn't have where we were. Um, and most of all, we needed more help and support. And where we are now is closer to family too. So that way, if we need help getting to appointments or watching our other daughter, we have that access now that we didn't have before. So all those things. Um, the team especially. Um, mm -hmm. Kelly and where, where are you getting help now? We're, we're now outside the Nashville area. Um, mm -hmm. and we have a team of doctors at Vanderbilt. We have a, a developmental pediatrician, a neurologist, and we have an appointment booked with the genetics, uh, coming up here soon as well. And then we go as well to therapy. Uh, she currently gets 
three sessions of speech through her IEP in the school with an amazing therapist. And I love the school system here. Mm -hmm. And then she also does outpatient where she goes to occupational therapy twice a week, uh, speech twice a week. And then she's doing hippotherapy right now, which is a form of physical therapy with a horse. And she's doing that once a week right now as well. I wonder why it's not with a hippo. I've always wondered that. <laughs> uh, see, wouldn't that be more entertaining? I just, just, it just, I wonder what they call therapy with a hippo. Yeah. So, uh, it, this is something that people may not know if they haven't moved much, but services in the U.S. are very different and and very widely depending on where you're at. And so, being in Louisiana, New Orleans versus other parts of the country. And now where you guys have landed in Nashville can, can mean very different opportunities for your kid. And it sounds like that's what you've, you've found, stumbled upon and found. We've had uh, IEP in three different States. Yeah. Um, and those three have been, one was disorganized. One was just unaware. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then to the one we have now, um, as well as the healthcare. So where we were previously, um, before we moved to the Nashville area, they had amazing healthcare that if your child has any kind of special needs diagnosis and an IEP, you can get medical assistance. And so that period in between of New Orleans and where we are now was a break for us because that medical assistance meant no copays for all of her therapy sessions. And it meant when there, when our insurance cut us off and said, you've met your allotment for the year, which yeah. for us is pretty high. We get over 30 sessions a year, but we burn through that in nine weeks. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so that secondary insurance picked up and says, nope, you still get therapy. We didn't have to worry about any of that cost. And so we were there about a year and a half without having to worry about that financial burden right there for us to be able to get out of the debt we had previously acquired, getting her medical care and able to mm -hmm. focus on that. And um, other states have different programs called the Katie Beckett waiver. There are several states that have that. Um, Tennessee just actually several months ago um, voted and started that program here. And so that's something we're going to apply for here as well and hoping that that helps relieve some of the financial burden. But there's grants available too, um, also depending on state and some of them are more nationwide, but there's a lot of resources out there if you're just willing to go look for them and to do the legwork. You gotta have your invoices and your doctor's notes and uh, your financials, all your W-2s and tax reports. But mm -hmm. if you can get it all submitted, and go through a little bit of red tape, it's well worth it. Another thing too that people might not be aware of that I wanna share is when you are going to um, outpatient therapy via a private practice, which is what Madeline goes to now and it's what uh, in Pennsylvania when we drove, th that was a private uh, practice as well. So one of the things people may not be aware of is um, some private practices uh, will negotiate with you on price, especially if they run your insurance and they realize, hey, insurance is only going to pay X amount of dollars. Um, they do like to run the insurance because insurance reimburses more than generally what someone could pay for with cash. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But the, the flip side to that is oftentimes they are willing to work with you because then they don't have to submit to insurance, deal with a denial and appeal. I mean, it's not uncommon for some of these private practices that they don't see payment from insurance till nine months after the original appointment date. So mm-hmm. they do sometimes um, are willing to work with you and say, hey, can you pay, you know, 60 a session or 50 a session? And then they get their payment up front, even though it's less with insurance, they get it quicker. Yeah. So y'all are both talking about different forms of advocacy that you've had to like grow in and develop in, in the past few years. And part of it is just negotiating the fee with the therapist that therapists are uh, paying bills themselves. And so they may be willing to take a little less to get paid sooner or, or, or for some other reason, they may be willing to negotiate, but go ahead and ask. It doesn't hurt. I'm a, I'm a therapist. I, it doesn't bother me at all when somebody asks me about my, my fee. Um, are there other resources? Maybe, maybe one, uh, maybe something comes to mind for, for either of you or both of you, but other resources that you would point a parent toward, um, maybe, a a group or, um, an organization or an advocacy group that has been really helpful for you. Um, you go first. There's probably two. The one I mentioned prior, Apraxia Kids, uh, just had so much information for me that if your child is, or if you suspect your child has apraxia of speech or recently went through a diagnosis, it had a lot of education on there for me, as well as um, some support groups on social media that I was able to join and hear other people's stories and kind of just see that you're not alone because this diagnosis especially is only 1%. And so that was good for us, uh, for me to see. But I think more than anything, it's just a strong support system. For us, it was our community groups through our church um, that really made a difference in our lives, both in New Orleans when we didn't know what was going on, and then after in Pennsylvania when we were going through the diagnosis route, um, route and learning everything that came with that. Um, having a strong community group was important to us to have that weekly meal and uh, Bible discussion and people that were just invested in our lives that really made a difference having that. I so think like the, the professional organization of Praxia Kids and then the very local community group of mm-hmm. people, just your friends that surround you and yeah. support you. Don't carry oh. the burden alone. So yeah. awesome. you will beat yourself to pieces thinking what if I would have noticed this sooner or what if I would have listened to Erica on this date a little bit more after that doctor's appointment or what if there's a lot of what ifs. And I think uh, in Pennsylvania and in New Orleans, just that local church body going through life with us, like walking alongside us and being present in our journeys definitely helped. And um, as far as resources go that I'm, I'm a nerd. I mean, I'll just say it. I'm, well, you worked for uh, Apple and then Microsoft. And then- <laughs> so one of the things I did was um, there. There's there's kind of two schools of thought on judging practitioners. You know, the main one is obviously what do they know? Like, am I going to get someone who's actually good at what they do? Kind of like with counseling. You know, does this person have an LPC or LMFT, or are they, you know, is their degree in underwater basket weaving? I like this. So one of the the things that you can look at is. Um, can look at a resource like Google Scholar and just type in apraxia, childhood apraxia of speech and just see all these articles pertaining to it. Some of them are free, some of them aren't, but you can kind of see who is continually cited in these articles. And then you can look up those people, go down that rabbit hole, see where do they practice at, 
who yeah. studied under them, wherever they presented at. And that's one that's one way. And this isn't really a resource either. Just ask people straight up. Why did you get into the field? Why do you do what you do? Um, and for like her speech team right now, they just, they love helping people be as independent as possible. And like, yeah, they definitely want to make money, but making money is not like the only reason why they're there. And so that's pretty cool too. And I would say knowing that person's why is as important as knowing what they know. People can always acquire knowledge down the road, right? But if someone's passionate and driven to help your child, I would take that over someone who has a PhD and all these other things, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I love both of those tips. And those are also just kind of advocacy that you're developing is number one, when you search scholarship in academia, you're going to going to find that the top names and those names are usually associated with universities and universities generally have research bodies. And if you can just get connected with that, you can usually find practitioners more locally. So I love that, that approach. Um, and then, yeah, figuring out why people, why professionals do what they do. I'm, I'm looking at this Apraxia Kids uh, website and their, their tagline is um, giving kids their voices. And so, it, you know, if, one, if, if a speech therapist says, yeah, hey, I, I love helping kids express themselves. I love giving a kid their voice or I love, you know, helping a kid figure out social skills. Yeah. You, you know, that they're, you you know, that they're invested in a different way. Um, this has been a great conversation for me. And it just as we wrap up, I I know that, um, you all have another daughter. You mentioned, um, the, the daughter that we've been talking about, Madeline is older and then you have a younger daughter. How, how is, how's their relationship going with their different speech abilities? Well, well, I think well, you, you go first. Our youngest daughter is also in speech. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not for childhood apraxia speech. Uh, it, her, it presents completely different than Madeline, but she has some acquired speech traits um, just because her number one plane mate it yeah. is going through learning, <laughs> learning speech. And so, um, she, <laughs> that's interesting. It is. So uh, she's in speech as well. Um, it's not as intensive and hers is articulation and phonological. Um, so it's a different type of therapy approach that is used with her than it is used with Madeline. Um, but their relationship I mean, she acquired that because they're close and they've spent so much time together, especially with the past year and pandemic and not having outside playmates. Um, They are each other's best friends and worst enemies. (laughs) Sure. They're siblings. They're siblings. They're siblings, but they're, they're close and they're sweet with one another. That was basically exactly what I was going to say. I I think (laughs) Clara's is a little bit just because of her number one playmate is Madeline that um, she picks up on, on some of those, but yeah. As we're wrapping up, if you wanted to leave listeners with something, um, I'm not even sure what that would be. And I don't know that we, we prepped you guys for this question. So it may be a little bit hard, but maybe even I'm even thinking about, if someone wanted to donate, what's a good organization to donate to? Or uh, if somebody wants to, you, you've given us a couple of 
organizations to look into, but maybe some advice for parents out there who are, who are struggling or, or wondering about their kid. What, what would you like to leave a listener with? I'll let you answer the donation one and I'll answer the. Um, another idea for donation might be small steps in speech. That is one of the foundations we got our grant from, and they provide speech scholarships for children every year. And so small, small steps child, in speech. Yes. That's a great organization. We got our um, one of our grants from them, and obviously, childhood uh, it's kid apraxia kids is a, a good one because they're they're actually vested in training existing SLPs, uh, speech and language pathologists, to learning more about apraxia and learning how to diagnose it, and you know how to provide specialized therapy for those approaches. I think those are both great organizations. Um, I don't know. My, my biggest piece of information, looking back, we had talked about how, you know, some of my regrets are, oh, if I only would have listened or if only I would have done this. I think one of my biggest takeaways is don't ask, don't get, you know, it's a, it's a cliche saying you don't ask for it. You'll never get it. But to, to give you an example, there's a very, very well-known SLP. Uh, do I name drop or no? No, no name dropping. Okay. Not going to name drop her. But she has her own website, and it's an extremely famous website. If I was to name drop it, your wife would absolutely know who I was talking about. Okay. But I, re I reached out to her, just shot her an email, and she replied back. And we ended up starting a correspondence about IEP goals and the way school systems handle things. And so previous Austin might have been like, no, nah, I'm not going to even ask that. There's no way they'll reply. But sometimes yeah. they do. And then um, – you know, yeah. I wish I would have spoken up more in some of those early doctor's appointments. Like, okay, you're telling me this is normal and we're going to wait it out. But what if this, then what do we do? And so it's that kind of thing of don't ask, don't get. I didn't ask, so I didn't get that knowledge then. Yeah, that's great. Great advice to all of us. Don't If you don't ask, you won't get it. That's that's true for most of us. This conversation, I, I just imagine, will be so so helpful to so many parents who um, love a kid with a special needs or parent, a kid with a special needs or, or are reminded about their sibling that had a, that had, or has a special need. Um, so thank you for, thank you both for sharing this part of your life with us. Um, it, we hope that it's part of a larger conversation in just how couples and families can come together and be parts of communities that can advocate for the needs of kids and the needs of family members. And so thank you for sharing that part of of, of your life with us. And as we always say, as Eric, if you were here, always ends our episodes with invest in your relationships. You guys are making tremendous investments in the lives of your kids. I might have to make a deposit of kisses after this episode. Yeah. Thank you, Matt. Invest in your relationship with the kisses. <laughs> Thank you for having us. We appreciate it. Of course. Of course. Great to talk to you guys. Dr. Matt Morris maintains an active private practice for couples and families in the greater New Orleans area. To learn more about his work, visit drmattmorris.com. Eric Garcia can be found online at plan-wisely.com. His branch office is located in New Orleans, Louisiana. The branch phone number is 504-218-5479.
Securities offered through Royal Alliance Associates Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through New Century Financial Group, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Insurance services offered through Garcia Financial Group, LLC. Entities listed are not affiliated.